Welcome to Parenthood Pals. I'm Caleb Hoyer. And I'm Melissa Fight Johnson. And today we have a special guest with us. Her name is Angela Curran. Hi, Angela. Hello. We're so happy to have Yay. you. I'm excited to be here. Angela <laughs> is a good friend of ours and da 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 da, a parent. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Finally! <laughs> Angela is, like Caleb said, one of our good friends. She's one of my best friends. I met her through Mark. She's Mark's bestest friend. She was actually his best man in our wedding. Angela, something we do on this show is, you know, Parenthood has team braverman, something that they talk about on the show. And so we would love if you could tell us a little bit about your family, you know, the one you grew up with, the one you have now, just like what's team Curran? Oh, okay. So I grew up in a small town with my parents and two siblings. So I have two brothers that are younger. I'm the oldest sibling and my parents are still married. They're going to have their 40th anniversary this year. Wow. And then I am a single parent who has never been married and I have one child who is 14 years old. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing a little bit about yourself. And I'm curious, um, what was your history with the show? Well, I have watched the, the show in its entirety one time. Um, and then before I watched this episode, I rewatched one and two. So um, I'll probably just go ahead and rewatch the whole thing now. <laughs> you know, every single episode of Parenthood makes me cry. Doesn't matter. It can be happy cry or it can be a sad cry, but there is not a single episode of Parenthood Aww. that doesn't make me cry. And I think it's because they always do like some giant family thing at the end that is with like the best soundtrack. Oh. And I'm just like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Was that the moment in this episode that got you crying? Yes, I think so. Like, it's just. Every time, Aww. but yeah, so I've got to rewatch it because I, <laughs> it, it was my favorite show on television when it was on and I've tried to replace it with other things and nothing compares. So Aww. a little Sinead there. <laughs> <laughs> well, today we are discussing Parenthood season one, episode three, the deep end of the pool. It originally aired on March 16th, 2010. It's directed by Lauren Strilling, written by Jeff Greenstein. I reckon he's a Jewish fellow. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> See how weird that is? Super weird. And here's the NBC synopsis. After Max gets kicked out of school, Adam and Christina explore the best educational options for their son. Sarah hits a wall when she ends things with Jim and succumbs to car problems. Meanwhile, Crosby spends a fun-filled day with Jabbar, and Julia realizes that she's missing out on her daughter's life. Let's start with Sarah's breakup with Jim. Do you guys buy her reason for breaking up with Jim? You know, she says it's timing and she says it's not him, it's her. Do we believe that? No, I don't. <laughs> what about you, Angela? <laughs> I, kind of, <clears throat> I kind of did, um, but also I'm kind of like, does she really just have regrets about her one night stand? So... The way I saw it, I thought if he were someone she was attracted to, I don't think she'd be giving a speech about timing at all. And maybe I'm wrong about that. And maybe I'm being unfair. Maybe the timing is a factor, 
But I don't know. It just felt to me like uh, all the platitudes. It's not you, it's me. He even is the one who supplied her with that line. So, yeah, I think I thought that it was like she thought it was a sort of mismatch situation. Just judging from her attitude, maybe in the pilot when she said, is this what you think of me, a balding fat barista? And even though they then went on to, you know, hook up in that episode, it did still seem like, well, what's wrong with him? What happened between then and now? Yeah, it seemed to me like maybe she just reconsidered. Am I actually willing to quote unquote settle for this guy, it seemed like she had a, a low opinion of him. I don't know. She said, oh, God, you're so nice. You're so nice. So in my mind, I don't know. Is if that it's... not a factor? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, I feel like she maybe doesn't have a low opinion of him as a person, like thinks he's very kind. I think that's genuine, but I think she's not into him and maybe thinks that's a fault of hers. Like she should be into someone that nice and she's not. I'm not really sure. I should say, I do think it's fair to not date someone if you're not attracted to them. If you don't feel the spark, you don't feel it. But still, I maybe be a little more honest about it. Although maybe then she just hurts his feelings. I don't know. Angela, do you think that when someone is breaking up with someone else, you should say something kind and perhaps not 100% true? <laughs> or, or do you think that you should just give it to them straight? What do you think about that sort of thing? Well, I really think it would depend on the situation. But in their situation, I think she realized like she couldn't move into her dad's studio and she was sharing a bed with Amber and it was really awkward. And she's thinking like, I have all this to deal with. How am I going to take time to date someone? And yes, he is really nice. And he's probably the kind of guy I should date. And I don't want to hurt his feelings. But I also like can't deal with one more thing right now. So maybe it really is timing. I mean, that's a really good point. I'm just curious if someone perfect came along, you know, or some, you know, would she still say timing, but maybe she would. Now, now I'm going to get personal. I maybe shouldn't, but I'm curious. Have Ooh. you ever like, <laughs> um, have you ever been super, super into someone and didn't date them just because of timing? I can't think of anything that would be like that. The reason I ask is I think that's the sort of thing I might say and mean, but only if I'm really not that into the person. Like the person I dated before Mark wasn't a big relationship. It was just a few dates. And I was, I told him, I was like, the timing is not good. I'm, I'm really happy on my own. Those were not lies. But then when it was time to date Mark, I didn't think to say those things. So it's kind of interesting. I don't know. So we hope you're listening, boyfriend before Mark. <laughs> oh, no, that's terrible. <laughs> so. She was never that into no. you. <laughs> I did appreciate in their breakup scene that once it was obvious where the conversation was going, Jim read between the lines instead of doing one of my least favorite Hollywood cliches, which is, are you breaking up with me? <laughs> I don't know why that bugs me so much. It just seems to me like something that almost no one says in real life. It's like, when you're being broken up with, you know it. It seems like a line that is more for the audience's benefit than the characters. It's like, hey, everyone, in case you didn't realize, they're breaking up right now. It's like, if you don't realize that already, you're probably not doing a very good job. No, it's a, it's a Chandler Janice situation. <laughs> I did think that one of the baristas writing bitch on her windshield after dumping coffee on it 
was a bit of an overreaction. And by bit, I mean a lot. Because while she may not have been entirely truthful, she was at least nice. It wasn't like she was cruel to him in the breakup. She didn't throw his ring back at him again. (laughs) (laughs) Good point. (laughs) That's an excellent point. I love that. Yeah. Well, and it just felt sort of wrong to me that that them being so nice to her and giving her free coffee. It was like one extreme or the other. Like, like, is this an indication of what dating Jim long-term would be like? These just wild swings, <laughs> you know, grand gestures. And then, I don't know, it just... It, if that's the case, get, get out, out now. now. Good job, Sarah. <laughs> well, it was only after one date too, right? Like, they all were like, wow, <laughs> so surprised. Good point. Yeah. I mean, I get that they slept together on that date, but isn't it the modern era? Who doesn't? No, I'm kidding. But <laughs> That's like a handshake now. <laughs> well, in other storylines, this episode, we see Crosby and Jabbar spending a lot more time together because Jasmine has an audition for the first time in a long time. The audition's in the city, so. Well, break a leg. I'm late. <laughs> Seriously. It's been a long time since I danced. Well, um, you're a great dancer. Thank you. You're limber. I think I remember. And as long as you Thanks. warm up, you're going <laughs> to You'll be fine. Thanks for the advice. I loved her. Thanks? <laughs> <laughs> with a question mark. Is that flirting? Is she, like, is he flirting with her when he says, you're limber, I think I remember? Is that inappropriate? Or is that just fine new parent catching up talk. I don't know. <laughs> what did you guys think of that line? I think it's Crosby just being his not knowing how to handle things. So it's just it's just Crosby. You know, that makes sense because he sort of defaults into everything's a joke. I mean, with Jabbar, that looks like offering him a drink and following it up with whiskey or beer, you know, <laughs> and maybe with Jasmine, it defaults into vague come-ons? I don't know. To me, it felt like just an allusion to their history. Mm. Like maybe that was a hallmark, (laughs) a cherished memory (laughs) of her in his mind. Oh, Jasmine, she was the really limber one. Isn't that what he says to Adam? He's like, you remember her? She was the flexible one or something like that. Oh, I don't remember. I think that was in the pilot, but that was... So maybe this is just character building. (laughs) (laughs) If there's one thing to know about Jasmine, it's her limber. She's flexible. The thing is, if she's a dancer, she would be. Yeah. Are we human or are we dancers? (laughs) (laughs) Someone's finally made sense of that lyric. (laughs) We also, at the beginning of this episode, see Sydney in this Zen swimming class. And I just loved this little exchange. We all see it. It means abundance. I'm sure it does. Just made me laugh. We all see it. I'm sure it does. Abundance is sort of perfect because I think to Julia, Raquel is a lot. So. Indeed. Yeah. I'll speak to Raquel's tattoo, though, because I, like many people my age, um, I have a lower back tattoo. I do not care for it being called a tramp stamp. I call it. A lower back tattoo, because that's what it is. Um, No slut shaming. But I'm curious, they gave her that tattoo on purpose, right? Like that's supposed to, I mean, and and Julia saying, we all see it, like that means something. 
or am I being sensitive because I don't like the, you know, way it's been portrayed in media? Oh, you mean you feel like the show itself is trying to sh- make us view Raquel negatively because she has a lower back tattoo? I think it adds to her whole uh, character depiction, kind of. I don't know. What do you think? I didn't know. I didn't really notice that, but I would I would equate it more with like just having a tattoo being more free spirited. As opposed to like placement, maybe. See, I like that because it's interesting. At the end of the show, we see Crosby with his um, tattoos everywhere, you know, and it even kind of like zeroes in on it as he's about to like jump off the diving board. And he is definitely portrayed as a free spirit. And I don't think that there's anything negative associated with his tattoo. So maybe I'm just being sensitive. But something about that line, we all see it. And something about Julia being so upset by... Um, Sydney getting one just like it later, but maybe that could be anything. Maybe the tattoo doesn't matter. You know, maybe it's just anything that she does to try to be like this other woman. Or maybe she, maybe in her mind, she thinks that like, cause she already doesn't like her hanging out with her husband, that it's just one more way of her, like showing how, you know, showing off her body and how amazing she is. I don't know. Maybe it's just her jealousy in that aspect. I will say I noticed regardless of the tattoo, that I thought Raquel's choice of swimwear for a child swimming class was quite skimpy. I mean, she's wearing a bikini and it's like a string bikini. And then like you compare that to when Julia makes her grand (laughs) misguided entrance later, she has a like athletic one piece suit on. And it just seemed to me like, okay, the objectives of these women are very clear and very different. That's a good point. And so that could be what the tattoo issue is. Like, we all see it because she's hardly wearing anything in a room full of five-year-olds and my husband. Yes. (laughs) That's a good point. We can get off of the whole tramp stamps, like, just conversation altogether. I think uh, it is interesting because I think the whole reason it maybe got that um, stigma is because often you do see that particular tattoo um, because of clothing choices or whatever. Mine is hidden from view 100% of the time. <laughs> so I think you raise a very valid point, though. No one should be calling it a tramp stamp unless the tattoo literally is the word tramp, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> it's ironic. <laughs> also, at the beginning of the episode, we see Max having sort of sensory overload in his classroom. And I knew that was an issue sometimes with kids on the autism spectrum, but I looked it up just to see what exactly was going on here. And this is from autismspeaks.org. Autism sensory issues can involve both hypersensitivities, over-responsiveness, and hyposensitivities, under-responsiveness, to a wide range of stimuli. These can involve sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touch, balance, and body awareness. For example, many people on the spectrum are hypersensitive to bright lights or certain light wavelengths. Many find certain sounds, smells, and tastes overwhelming. Certain types of touch can feel extremely uncomfortable. It seemed like that was conveyed quite well through the sound design of that scene with the fish tank. It did start to feel uncomfortable really quickly. I thought that was a nice peek inside Max's perception. And then I also noticed later on in the episode when they are waiting to meet with the teacher at Footpath, Christina is kind of lightly touching Max's hair and he grabs her arm and moves her hand away. Oh. And she says, sorry, 
He clearly didn't like being touched by her. I think they're doing such a good job of little subtleties like that to, to really portray the experience as accurately and honestly uh, as possible. I think it's really well done. I, I kind of looked it up and I, I should have pulled a quote or something, but I saw that um, overall it's been a really uh, widely praised um, performance and depiction of they call it Asperger's, which, you know, we've talked about how that's not really a term that's used anymore, but it's, it was really lauded. I think it's moments like that that help. The performance is something I don't think we've talked a lot about yet, but it should be said that, especially for a young actor, to be portraying this seemingly so authentically, it does feel like a very impressive achievement yeah, it's not at all like a stereotype. You know, it's it's very subtle. I Really, it's very impressive. Do you have any idea how old uh, he was when portraying this? He was 12 in season one. Oh, it's very clear that I don't have children. <laughs> I can't tell the difference between eight and 12. 12? How old is he supposed to be? He's not supposed to be 12, is he? Looks like his classroom scenes. I mean, like, is he supposed to be in the seventh grade? I don't think so, because I did notice that in that fish tank scene, the assignment he was doing was writing his name and the quick brown fox jumps over. I hope 12 year olds aren't doing that. Right. I hope they're beyond that. Maybe. Yeah, maybe I that's like why I thought he was younger. the pilot episode, didn't someone, I feel like maybe Christina or something said he's eight. Oh, maybe that's why I thought he was eight. I was told he was eight. But then but I... But that's... Yeah. That's really misguided. If you have a 12-year-old and you're hoping that the series is going to last for a while, it's like, how do you explain an eight-year-old going through puberty the next year? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, well, we'll have to be on the watch for when his voice changes. That feels awkward. Let's... I don't know. Forget I said that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the thing I noticed most in that scene, maybe it's because I'm a teacher and I know I'm a high school teacher, but um, Angela, you're a teacher too. So tell me what you thought of the way that the teacher was speaking to Max. Did you have any sort of thought about that? Because I, I had a reaction. Yeah, I probably had the same reaction as you. I felt like, wouldn't she already know that he has some issues, whether he has an IEP or not, that she should probably like deal with that differently and then when they get in the fight I'm like you were just letting it happen like you didn't even <laughs> stop it from the beginning so yeah she just says things like Max be quiet Max sit down and she sounds really annoyed and I, I don't know maybe after a while of maybe I'm being too hard on her but I, it's not like I think teachers should be superhuman and never lose their cool but it seems like he asks one question like can we do something about the, the the noise in the tank and she's like god you know and I'm like well you're a teacher who probably knows that he's going through something where's your sensitivity I don't know. that's why that school is not the school for him <laughs> that's right they really maybe wanted to just show us that and mission accomplished that's a very good point <laughs> so to jump around a little bit Jabbar's time with Crosby is spent largely doing Candyland <laughs> to start with. And I know, Melissa, you mentioned specifically loving Jabbar's delivery in this scene. I want again. Uh, all right, you clocked me fair and square. One more. There's only so much defeat a man can take. I could play any easier. Oh, really? Is there anything else you want to do? Not really. 
You can't even really hear him say no because he says it so quietly, but that's my favorite. He's like, not really. And then he mouths no and just shakes his head. <laughs> so cute. Although it's interesting that they picked Candyland. Is there any skill to that game? Like, isn't it just a game of chance? I think it is. Yeah. Oh, okay, that's fine. He's five. What yeah. does he know? Even though Jasmine says he's a genius. <laughs> Every mother says that about their kid. <laughs> He's counting the dice roll or whatever. <laughs> He's, He's counting like cards. He's it like a Vegas gambler. <laughs> and um, Jabbar's little puking moment in the car, it felt to me like a little bit of a callback to the movie when Taylor pukes at the beginning. Although I thought that the puking was actually much less realistic 20 years later, which I thought was interesting. Like, you see the puke in the movie. And this, it's one of those moments where it's just implied. You know, it's implied puke. It's called being tasteful. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, look it up in case you have no familiarity. Melissa wants that family guy Ipecac scene where everyone's just (laughs) drowning in vomit. That's what, I mean, I want my shows to be drowning. You know, just that scene from Pitch Perfect all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I did think it was kind of weird that Jasmine didn't tell him, like, by the way, he can't have lactose. (laughs) That's a really good point. Shouldn't there be a list, you know, of things to know about your own son because you missed the first five years uh, through really no fault of your own or maybe through fault of your own. We got to circle back to that. I feel like there were no new clues in this episode as to why uh, Crosby didn't uh, get told about Jabbar. That's something that I keep looking out for. Like, when do we get that explanation? But Angela, that's a really good point. And it's not like it's some obscure food allergy. Like, well, they probably won't have, I don't know. Shellfish? Shellfish on their play date today. But like lactose, if they're going to have chocolate or ice cream or, you know, things no kid likes. (laughs) It might be worth mentioning. I did also notice later on in the episode when Jabbar runs into Katie and she's giving him milk and Crosby intervenes and says he can't have that. He's lactose intolerant. But Crosby also tells her that it's just some kid that someone at the studio asked him to watch. I thought, would a random person who asked you to watch their kid for a little bit tell you that they're lactose intolerant? (laughs) Or does that indicate that maybe Crosby has a little bit of a deeper relationship with this kid? Katie just believes what she wants to believe, man. That's just how it works. Maybe she ain't too bright. Maybe that's her, like, one flaw. (laughs) That's true. She's, we keep talking about how she's this, like, beautiful, successful, wonderful, I mean, I don't know about wonderful, we don't know her that well, but she seems really cool and, you know, interesting and smart. And we're kind of like, why is Crosby just stringing her along? Like, why didn't he just break up with her um, instead of agree to have a child with her in three years? It doesn't really make any sense if you think about it i don't know it's like whatever i gotta just let that go it just bothers me every time i did notice that she said in that scene when she saw crosby she said hey fiance and i thought is that news i know he said that he's basically engaged but he's not literally engaged is he (sighs) i don't know yeah the whole relationship makes no sense to me i don't get it And also, is that a thing you say to people? Like when I was engaged, Mark never walked in a room and I was like, hey, fiance. Like, I don't know. That seems very strange. Maybe that's just this world. Hey, big brother. Hey, fiance. (laughs) Hey, Sonny. (laughs) By the way, I don't think that Zeke has called Adam Sonny since. (laughs) So like maybe that was just in the pilot so that everyone knew their relationship. 
Now we're done with that. Crosby's journey in this episode is just more exploration of, is he ready to be a father? Does he have any chemistry or connection with Jabbar? And he even flat out asks Adam, What makes all this worth it? makes it worth it is the connection. It's the bond you feel. They're yours, you know. You're part of them. Well, what if I don't feel a connection? I, you know, any, any more than you'd feel to any kid. You will. So because we have a parent here with us, <laughs> let me pose it to you, Angela. What makes parenthood worth it? <laughs> well, actually... 30, 30 seconds or less, please. Like, <laughs> when, when, that, when he asked that question to Adam, I was like, huh, what's he going to say? Because I really want to know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think he had a good answer. Like, I, I really do think that it's just this... I think Crosby didn't get the chance to have that initial bond. So he's going to have to like, you know, get to know him and create that bond. But I definitely think that there is just something very different between being a parent and then being someone who likes kids and has like maybe nieces or nephews. But, you know, it's hard to explain the difference, but I have both nieces and nephews and I have a child. And I would, I would say like, you know, I'd pretty much do anything for all of them, but the connection that I have with my child is just a very unique thing. So I, I think Adam did a good job explaining. It's a really hard thing to put words to. Now, this might be a stupid question, but I mean, because you mentioned Crosby didn't have the chance to have an initial bond with Jabbar, like from birth, is that connection instantaneous in a way, or does it take some time to develop? I would just say in my situation, I think that there's like something to that, like you are helping to shape that person from the time they're born. So with him, he doesn't have the opportunity to like, he didn't have the opportunity to have like his input in molding Jabbar's ideas. And maybe, you know, maybe that's a good thing considering Crosby isn't like super responsible, <laughs> but, but I honestly think that a reason that a lot of people have children in the first place is just because they want to see like what this experiment will result in. Uh, like they want to see what their genes will produce and like how well they can like make this person like things that they like or get interested in their hobbies and stuff like that. And, and obviously like kids aren't going to do exactly what you want them to do like ever, but like something my son said to me the other day that I thought was really funny is that he has grown up around mostly adults. And so he likes a lot of things that I like, uh, but he said that he really wished he would, he would have been born in the eighties so that he could be an eighties and nineties kid. And like, because it was so cool. And I, I just laughed because I thought the same thing about like what my parents went through. And I always thought like, oh, I wish I could have been in the 60s and 70s, like to do what my parents got to do. So I don't Aww. know. It's just like that kind of cool, weird thing. And, and I think the bond grows from like, you know, the time you start hanging out with him. So he'll definitely have the bond, I think, if he gets to keep hanging out with him. But you just didn't get to have that initial like input. 
That was not 30 seconds or less. <laughs> I'm glad. It was that a- was a joke. <laughs> so I'm glad. That's a great answer. Well, and it seemed to me that maybe he did start to experience that at the end of their their storyline, at the end of the episode, when Jabbar admitted that he ran away because, you know, he had broken that thing off the soundboard and Crosby said something. Soundboard? Why couldn't I think of the word? <laughs> I love that the... The not the not professional musician thought of the right word. Continue. <laughs> um, and, you know, Crosby said that he would have done the exact same thing. And I thought maybe that was, you know, supposed to be their sort of bonding moment where he sees himself in his son. And I like that it's not like a super proud moment, you know, like he hits a home run at the game and he's like, ah, oh, just like me. It's, it's like, oh, he messed up and ran away. Just like me. <laughs> We're both cowardly fuck ups. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I thought that was so sweet. And then he like reached over and kind of tousled his hair. And I'm like, this is so precious. I could die. I don't know. I loved it. It was very sweet, even though like the scene begins with Jabbar saying, is my mom here yet? (laughs) So like clearly it's not without its bumpiness. It's not like they're just hitting it off right away, but they do clearly have some chemistry, you know, Crosby teases him and he's laughing. And so they get along. That feels very real, but it doesn't feel like a floodgates opening kind of moment of, and now I am a father. Right. You know, that, that didn't happen. Also, the fact that Crosby felt guilty enough to apologize to him, I interpreted that as he felt at least some kind of responsibility to Jabbar greater than just like a friend or something. I mean, he's five, but that he felt like, I owe you an apology. I did you wrong. But well, you must have some respect for him. And then I especially loved Jabbar's delivery of, It's okay. I understand. It was so cute. Yeah. No, but that scene really did break my heart when he sort of like, I mean, it was very biblical, right? He like denied (laughs) knowing his own son. And I mean, I get it. He was caught off guard. We've discussed before, like, why doesn't he just tell Katie? And maybe he has his reasons. And maybe that's just not the right moment. Like, well, here he is. You know, maybe he felt put on the spot. But I thought it was just awful that he pretends that Jabbar's just some random kid. I, I hated that very much. And so I'm glad he at least apologized to Jabbar for that. Let's go back a little bit to the swimming storyline, you know, which is the the title of the episode is The Deep End of the Pool. I liked after the initial scene that we got this little peek into Joel and Julia's relationship. Question. Yes, counselor. Are we at all concerned that Sydney has had five swim lessons now? All she can do is the... Uh, We are not concerned. I know you were on the swim team and you were really, really good. I was not just really, really good. I was all CIF. Oh, okay. Well... Mommy, come see! God, Bravermans are so cocky. (laughs) I loved that. From my memory of watching the show, probably for the first time, I remember that it took Joel a really long time to feel like he had any personality and maybe rewatching is helping me see that he actually is showing a personality right away. It's just maybe not a very big personality or not very flashy, but like in that scene, Bravermans are so cocky. And the way he said, yeah, I know you swam and I know you were (laughs) 
really good at it. <laughs> I exaggerate because he he didn't. But when you see his face, he's clearly making a joke about how Julia is a little braggadocious. About her swimming. Could you just not stop thinking of swim fan? Because I was just like. What? Yeah, I knew that she was a swim fan. But I... <laughs> okay, yeah. You love me. I know it. Okay. <laughs> I tried so hard to find that to make a little clip of it. I couldn't find it <laughs> oh, anywhere. That's too bad. I'll just have to do my pitch perfect impression again. You love me. I know it. Okay. <laughs> It was suspicious. It was a nice peek into Julia's character. I thought that she she like kind of can't help herself when she is good at something. It's so funny. It's so the opposite of Sarah. You know, the last episode she was telling Sarah, you got to go in there and say, I'm going to blow your freaky mind. I'm a find. And here where Julia should maybe have a little humility about her swim experience. It doesn't have to be. Sydney's doesn't have to be identical to hers. She just can't resist. And like when she comes in and swims across the whole length of the pool, when she comes up, Joel's first words are nice entrance. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, like you just couldn't resist, could you? I simultaneously loved her entrance, like thought it was so funny. It was like that grizzly bear song and it was just like she's wearing a swim cap and every you know it's just too much i loved it but at the same time i was trying to figure out other than making us the audience sort of laugh what was her purpose in doing that because right after her entrance it seems like maybe she would have preferred it if not everyone were watching them as she was trying to get sydney to swim to her and i'm like but there's no way everyone isn't going to be watching you after that entrance. So, you know, I, what did, did you guys? Yeah, I think it's possible she didn't think it through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, OK, that leads me to this question. Is she intimidated by Raquel? Because I know she's bothered by her, but I I'll just answer first what I think. And I'm curious what you guys think. I don't tend to think she's really jealous at all. I don't think she does that because she's feeling insecure or anything. I think you could look at that scene through the lens of she's got something to prove. But for some reason, I don't really think that's it. I think she thinks she's better than Raquel. And, you know, maybe, you know, Raquel's got this super skinny body and her Tibetan prayer stones and her tattoo. But Julia's actually good at shit. You know, I think that's how she sees it. Like, I'm actually a great swimmer. I'm not just looking good in my suit. And I, I don't know. I'm curious, do you guys think Raquel had anything to do with that entrance or no? I was thinking like, you know, she made the comment that she doesn't even work. And I feel like, you know, when she's at work, she's in control because she's a lawyer and she has the power. But here she is like with a group of other women who have this whole other part that she can't really get into. And so she, I almost feel like her entrance was kind of like a, well, you know, I don't have to be a stay at home mom because I can still do these things and I can do them better than you. And I don't know, it's almost like a self gratifying is not really the word I'm trying to think of, but like just kind of like proving to herself that she's just as good as those other moms, if not better. Yeah, I agree. I feel like it's a kind of form of jealousy, less than like intimidated. You know, Raquel has a presence in Sydney's like daytime life, her like waking life. 
that Julia's at work. So she comes home and has to hear about her from Sydney. Mm. Oh, Raquel did this. Oh, Raquel did that. And like Angela kind of just said, Julia has a, does a lot of things that I think Sydney should be proud of. But she's not going to be proud of them when she's five. Yeah. Like, hey, my mom's a great lawyer. Five-year-olds don't care about that. When Sydney is a freshman in college, I bet she's going to be like, my mom is a badass. Yeah. She's like this incredible lawyer. She was all CIF swimmer <laughs> when she was in high school. Which I looked up is California Interscholastic Federation, by the way. So this is like I think we state. gathered what it was, but I was curious. But yeah, now that she's five, it's like, well, how do I make her realize, hey, I'm good at stuff too. And I'm not around all day. I'm not baking cookies for your school's fundraiser, but I have value. Mm-hmm. Well, and okay. Th- I think this is what I really find interesting about this storyline is that I think other shows would probably have Julia be jealous of Raquel, like on a personal level with Joel, you know, like, like, oh, she's so pretty. And is Joel interested in her? And I don't really get that vibe at all. I think she thinks Raquel is like a little inappropriate, you know, but I don't think she's actually jealous that way. But yeah, with 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 Sydney, she is. And I think that's just a much more compelling angle than, ooh, pretty woman hanging around my husband. You know, that's, who? Ca- I don't know, that's been done, I feel. And, and Julia's too confident for that. But yeah, she's confident about her power and her ability as a worker. And, and I bet being a mother is a harder thing, especially in this environment where everyone's a stay-at-home parent. I think it's really interesting to see different combinations of siblings in different dynamics and things. And in this one, we had this nice Julia and Adam scene. And that felt like a combination we hadn't seen much. We've definitely gotten the brothers together. And we've definitely had the sisters together. And we've had some Adam and Sarah. (laughs) (laughs) But this felt really fresh. I also thought it was interesting. Julia comes by Adam's office, just like Zeke did. And it appears that no one else works at this company. <laughs> Adam is in like a wing entirely by himself. There was no evidence of any other human life. That's true. Maybe they haven't put a whole lot of time and thought into what the rest of the working environment's going to look like. I liked that scene mostly because it was an interesting dynamic between the two most responsible, you know, family members. They're both like, let's get shit done. And so, you know, it was interesting. Adam was too distracted to give her his full attention, but he was honest about that. And she didn't care, probably because she's often too distracted to give anyone her full attention. And they came up with a solution together. Some people just want to be heard when they talk, but I don't think they do. They want answers and solutions. And then they... You know, so it was a very short meeting because boom, got the answer, left. I liked it. Good point. I also liked the support that Adam gave her. Do you remember what a great swimmer I was? Yeah, you were all CIF. I was, thank you. Gosh, that that oh, that means a lot to me to remember that. You're welcome. Okay, anyway, I don't get a say in how my daughter's learning how to swim, me, all CIF. Because you have to work. Because I have to work. Juliet, listen to me. You don't have to choose between being a mom and having to work. Okay? Yeah. You may not be there all the time, but the time that you do have, you can make it count. She's your daughter. Teach her how to swim. So remember that for the rest of her life. I thought it was a really nice point. You don't have to choose. Working doesn't invalidate your contribution to your daughter's swim training. It's funny, though. It reminds me of last episode when you said after Julia advised Sarah 
go in there and say, I'm going to blow your freaking mind. And you're like, do you think she literally meant for her to say, I'm going to blow your freaking mind? And here, I think Julia might have misinterpreted Adam a little <laughs> bit. Because listening back to it, it seems like perhaps what he's saying is, find some time outside of this swim class uh. where you can teach Sydney how to swim, just the two of you, not interrupt the entire class <laughs> with this like Olympic demonstration. That's a very good point. I, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. I hadn't really thought of that, but that that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I like Adam's brand of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. Like in that scene with Adam and Crosby, he does say again, like, you know, man up, be a man, some version of that to Grow Crosby. Grow a pair, I Grow believe. Grow a pair. That's, that was it. And it was this idea of take care of your kid, not grow a pair, sleep with every woman you can, not grow a pair, you know, um, be a badass in some stereotypically, you know, gross way. It was just, yeah, take care of your kid. And then here, you know, he tells uh, Julia that she doesn't have to choose. And, you know, he's this incredible family man. And you might associate that with being traditional. Maybe this is the Berkeley in him. Uh, <laughs> but he, his idea of being a family man or woman or person really is just more about being good to your loved ones. And, and he doesn't seem to have any gross gender assumptions or stereotypes. He just thinks everyone should be there for their kids as much as they can be. That being said, while I think it was good advice for Adam to tell Juliet that her job doesn't invalidate her having an opinion about how Sydney learns how to swim, I also think Joel had a fair point when he mentioned, I'm so sorry. I just, I thought that I could you help. just pop in and have everything your way and then pop out. You're mad. You should have told me. I think it is a fair point that showing up, while it shouldn't be a requirement to have an opinion, it isn't irrelevant either. Like Joel is putting in the time to make sure Sydney knows how to swim. And if Julia has an issue with that, I think it's best that they talk about it and come up with a new plan, not just Julia pop in and have everything her way. Yeah, I that's such a good point. I, I thought he was really fair. Yeah, I, I couldn't even quite pinpoint why I thought he was so fair. But, you know, he is there the whole time. And, and you know, I, I don't think he's making Julia feel bad at all. He's always grateful when she is able to spare some time and, and be there. And he includes her. I think he's really good to her. But, yeah, don't take over. Um, you know, don't just kind of march in there and try to have it your way. And then I really loved at the end of the episode that by the time she got home, he was just over it. Like there was no big tearful apology scene. They just made up. He even says now that Sydney has swum and shown Julia the video, she wouldn't have been able to do it without Julia torturing her. <laughs> so there's a little joke, like a little wink of, hey, we all remember that you were a little ridiculous about this, <laughs> but also an admission that it helped. Yeah. Well, and I think that's very realistic. I know that sometimes in my marriage, what Mark and I need is not a big dramatic apology scene with music playing. <laughs> like sometimes we just need a little time. And after a couple hours, we're over it. You know, it's just, we have to be able to say we're mad in the moment. And then usually it's not that big of a deal. And we just kind of put it in perspective. We love each other. We know that we almost always have the right intentions and it's okay. 
I also think some of Joel's reaction in the swimming scene is also that Julia put him in a tough spot as a spouse because I think he even, did he say at some point, like, you might have given me a heads up? Yeah. Yeah, something like that. Because when she just barrels in with this other method of hers, I think with eyes on them, he feels some responsibility to support her as her husband. And you can see him weighing, like Julia wants to do this method in the middle of the Zen class that is the complete antithesis of what the class is all about. He doesn't want to disrespect the class, but he also doesn't want to just hang her out to dry. And so he eventually gets on board and is encouraging Sydney as well. And that's not a fair position to put him in because... Sorry, no. You, no yeah. you said something that got me so excited because I didn't even think about that. How at the beginning he says it's all about feeling safe and acclimated you know, to the water as opposed to dropping someone in the deep end and hoping fear kicks in and their survival instincts and then they don't get drowned, as Sydney says. <laughs> and so, yeah, that that's true. It is the complete antithesis. And I hadn't really even put it that succinctly. And I think that if she had really expressed, not as like a playful frustration, but a honest conversation about, I disagree with the method that she's being taught, I think we know enough about Joel now to assume he would respect that and they would pursue some other way. Yeah. But on the spot, then he has to make this decision that he may not agree with just so that he doesn't make Julia look even worse. Yeah. I did like in that conversation, though, that Julia flat out apologized. Me too. And she did it twice. Sincerely both times. Yeah. Yeah. And, but she also said, but she did swim. (laughs) (laughs) She just can't resist, but she's not wrong either. Yeah. Julia finds the whole Zen swimming thing kind of bullshit, which is another issue I wanted to raise. And I've raised it a little bit up to now with like, do these people really belong in Berkeley? And again, I haven't been to Berkeley. So maybe I have a like cartoonish idea of Berkeley as this like hippie, liberal, off the charts kind of place. But okay. So Julia thinks the Zen swimming class is ridiculous. Fine. But then she gives the Tibetan prayer stone to Adam. And I think Julia would acknowledge that the thought was nice. But I think it's clear that she thinks the actual concept of a prayer stone is stupid. And Adam seems to think it's stupid, too. And then when Sarah sees it later in the episode, she's like, has it come to that? (laughs) Like They all seem to think this stuff is just ridiculous. And I'm sure there are people in Berkeley who think New Age or Buddhist or whatever these concepts are, are ridiculous. But I just wonder if people who've lived their whole lives in Berkeley would be reacting to it as if it's some foreign, like, can you believe anyone believes this? (laughs) You've been living around them for 40 years. I think you'd be over it by now. Is your, is your... (laughs) Is your image of Berkeley just a city full of Raquel's? <laughs> just every- yes, kind of. <laughs> I like it. But who knows? Or at least with a lot of Raquel's. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just the like incredulity of like, can you believe anyone thinks that a prayer stone is a reasonable thing? I think that they would not be unused to that. I don't know. Am I crazy? No. Adam is holding it at the end, so maybe he buys in more than he lets on. But I also, in that like final shot, he's holding it, and then like Christina takes it out of his hand and puts her hand in his hand. And I wondered, 
are we supposed to read anything into that? Or is it just, I can't hold your hand if there's a stone in it? <laughs> or is it supposed to be symbolism of like, we don't need a prayer stone. We have each other. That's something real to be looking to for comfort. Toss this stupid stone aside. That actually kind of makes me think of the Adam and Christina storyline. And I don't want to take us there before we're ready, but I do have a thought. I had kind of a major epiphany, if you if you will. Reveal it. Here. Um, <laughs> my epiphany was that I really don't think that Adam and Christina's experience with having, you know, a special needs child is it all representative of what most people's experience must be because, and I love them. So don't get me wrong. And I think they're great parents, but they're also just incredibly privileged. Um, I just, I could not help but think, okay, they weren't supposed to be able to get in to see Dr. Pelican. Cause he has like a wait list forever, a year and a half or something. And they, they find an in and then footpath. No, no one can get into footpath, at least not until September. And they just kind of, force their way in there too and i'm like well and dr parakeet mentions that like the tuition <laughs> is like double private school and adam goes that's not an issue yeah so i'm like is that what it's like for most people <laughs> they're like okay we got to get our kid into an expensive school and an expensive therapist and we're just gonna pay whatever it costs yeah, and the I was thinking while I was watching it, like they were they could only get in with that doctor by chance. And then they go and see him like three more times in the episode. <laughs> Once you're in, you're in with Dr. <laughs> Flamingo. I don't <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. The, the the speech and maybe the icing on the cake for me was when they're talking to the principal of, of Footpath. And they're, you know, it's very charming. It's sweet. They're describing all the nice things about Max. And I really like how specific and kind of weird some of those are. Like he's weirdly good at the harmonica and he makes his chess pieces fight. I'm like, oh, those are really great reasons to say, take him. He's wonderful. You know, those are such, you know, um, kind of odd personal reasons. And I, I liked all that. I really did. And I thought, okay, maybe it's fair to say, just give him 15 minutes, just give him five minutes. But it is still pushy. The principal's still saying, no, we don't have room, uh, probably thinking of things like class sizes and teachers, and they just kind of force their way in there anyway. I'm going to meet him. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to meet him. Thank She's going to meet him. I'm going to meet him. Thank you so Thank much. You. Thank you Thank very you. much. Great. Good afternoon. Thank you. Have to get some work done. Great. Thank you. Okay. You look a little bit like Oprah. Good afternoon. <laughs> Bye. I don't know. You didn't like that? <laughs> I thought, oh... <laughs> I know. I thought that would hurt their chances more than anything. Yeah. Oh, I'm just like, oh, she, that just felt like the whitest thing Christina could have possibly said. And just on top of me already starting to think, oh, they sound really privileged. And then I'm like, oh, you know, just, yeah. You look a little bit like Oprah, only black person I've ever met. I don't know. That's just what it felt like. Well, to me. at the very least, but. I would, if so, well, <laughs> I was about to say, if someone told me I looked like Oprah, <laughs> I'd consider that a compliment. I probably would because I think Oprah is really beautiful, but um, <laughs> no one would ever tell me that right. <laughs> for like a multitude of reasons. <laughs> and and Oprah is really beautiful, but it is there's something interesting about she's like the most famous black person probably you know ever, and it just 
Ugh, I don't know. And it, it is interesting. It makes you wonder certain lines like that one. And, uh, you know, again, earlier when Zeke is like, I reckon he's a Chinese fella. <laughs> these, these are not racist comments per se, but they are like, I would call them microaggressions. You know, I would call them like tone deaf. I would call them, you know, just dumb shit that white people sometimes say that's problematic and they don't think it's problematic because nobody really does that to them. You know, it, it, it's just... It's an interesting thing. Again, I would raise the point. I would expect white people in Berkeley, of all places, to be farther ahead on that. Sometimes it feels like if this show were set in St. Louis, some of these things would make a lot more sense to me. (laughs) Like people rolling their eyes at a Tibetan prayer stone. Yeah, in St. Louis, everyone would roll their eyes at that. In Berkeley, I feel like some people would roll their eyes, but a lot of people wouldn't. I don't know. Yeah. Well, you know, you do have Crosby living on a boat, so that feels whimsical. You know? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Speaking of Adam and Christina at Footpath, I couldn't help but notice at the end when they're waiting to see the teacher and Christina says to Max... Are you hungry, honey? Do you want a snack? I have crackers. I have a banana. I have an apple. I have some trail mix. I have a granola bar. I have a hard-boiled egg. I'm fine. Does she have, like, Mary Poppins purse? (laughs) (laughs) She has, like, a whole cafeteria in there. And she literally pulls out, like... All this stuff. I thought, Why does she have so much food in her bag? <laughs> well, and an egg? I don't know. <laughs> well, Angela, you're a parent. Is, is, is that relatable? Is that just like when Oren was younger? Did you have to be prepared for every conceivable moment? Or is that just... I mean, yeah, you have to be prepared when they're when they're younger. But I also like don't remember. You know, I might have like a granola bar or some like a half open bag of chips or <laughs> something. I'm not... <laughs> Uh, but I kind of looked at it as like she wanted to sh- sort of make the moment perfect because it was high stakes for them. Uh, ma- mm. Not necessarily Max. I don't think Max really cared one way or the other, but <laughs> but for them, it was high stakes. So she's like, oh, well, what if he gets hungry? I'll just like put everything in here. Like, what if he's like, has this problem? I'll just throw that in there too. So by the time they get there, she's just like, have a smorgasbord. I don't care. <laughs> That's a good point. It's probably meant to reveal how prepared Christina is for like any and every situation. Whereas like Sarah would be like, I've got a piece of Wrigley's gum. Right. <laughs> And meanwhile, Christina's like, I got a fruit roll up. I got bread pudding. I've got a Peking duck. (laughs) Yeah. And to be fair, like I find myself identifying the most with Sarah out of anyone in the show. So (laughs) (laughs) love Sarah. Well, you know, it's interesting, though. Christina was so prepared for Max's interview. So was Adam. But they scheduled it at the same time as Hattie's game. I I just couldn't even believe that was even a conflict when they were like, oh, no, we're going to be late for the game. And then they get there and they missed the whole game. So I'm like, either that interview was five hours long. And when it was supposed to be meet him for 15 minutes, for five minutes, clearly it wasn't that long. I'm like, why did they miss the entire game? They just scheduled it at the same time as their daughter's finals. And I just... I don't know. So yeah, they're, they are really prepared, but just with one kid. And so I thought it was a really great um, kind of moment at the end when Hattie's like, you, you think this has just been hard for me for a few weeks? Why is everyone so surprised about this? This has been my whole life. This has been years. And I thought, yeah, she's completely right. Yeah, I wrote down Hattie has a legitimate gripe. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It's also nice, though, in the middle of this episode, when she finds out Max was kicked out of school, her first instinct is to comfort Max and be like, well, that's their loss. So 
It really is. It's it's not like she is indifferent or uncaring to her brother and his situation. But it is also like, I know where I stand. Yeah. Max comes first. And any time left over is devoted to me. I, I love that, actually. It seems so perfect to me because they don't portray her like a brat. It, and she's not even complaining when she says this to Adam, which I thought was such a great choice. She's a teenager... Well, I guess we all sort of whine sometimes. And I was just thinking about my own students. Actually, I don't think they whine all that much. But, you know, they easily could have had her whine. They easily could have had her be complaining. The fact that she sort of delivers that monologue um, to her dad, matter-of-factly, I thought was much more powerful. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a really complex relationship. She loves her brother. She's, I don't even know if she's that resentful of him. Yeah. I feel like it might be pretty realistic as well, because um, if you think about it, like uh, probably a lot of families that have someone with a disability, the person with the disability gets more of attention, attention or illness. Like I know I have a, a cousin who um, had a younger sister who had a major disability and was in the hospital all the time. And so she was kind of getting shuffled off to other people while they went to the hospital and um, you know, and she, she just knew like, it's not necessarily fair, but it's also, you know, she loved her sister and was supportive and just did whatever she had to do to make that work for her parents too. And she was very young. So the way they portray it in the show, I think is, is really, really realistic for a lot of families that probably deal with that kind of situation. Maybe that's why they made Hattie older because in the movie, you know, she's, right around. She's actually younger than Kevin and just a couple of years, you know, so maybe they thought it would be more interesting if she were the older sister and her life changed when Max came along. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. I like also how she's, she's almost always so far been the more reacts, more responsibly toward Max than the parents do. Mm. Like, why are you guys flipping out over this? Like, all you got to do is say this like when they're talking about the tv time or whatever which is kind of funny because she's not the one that's supposed to be the adult but she has like the better options for <laughs> taking care of him it's <laughs> a really good point well to switch gears a bit pun intended I love that Zeke takes such pride in Sarah being able to fix cars and that he taught her how to do it <laughs> and that he doesn't have any kind of weird gendery things about like, well, girls shouldn't fix cars. Literally, when she says, you know who taught me, his reaction is, that's my girl. Yeah, I tell you, I find that so charming and just just sweet. It feels very different from the movie, um, you know, and, and yeah, he doesn't seem to have any different ideas for his sons and his daughters. He seems to have taught them all the same life skills, you know, and, and he's real proud of Julia being so assertive at work. And, and yeah, it's really, he is a great dad, like really wonderful. I, I know that maybe not everything he does is 100% good all the time, but that's just human. I, he's really a good dad. And so it, it kind of makes me think that Adam might be unfair if he ever says differently about Zeke, uh, unlike the movie where Gil is right to complain, you know, about, about Frank. I do question though, some of the skills that Sarah seems to have learned. In this family... We take care of ourselves and we don't expect other people to help us. Which is why by the time I was your age, I knew how to change a tire and uh, bake a casserole oh and my. break into a, a car and a fashion a teepee out of wood and leather. Oh, really? What? <laughs> why is she fashioning teepees? I think that one's a joke. 
Okay. <laughs> and yeah. I think maybe break maybe that's into all some... you needed to say. I... <laughs> I did think it was interesting, though, the different skills that different generations either are expected to have or do have. You know, like I, I totally bought it that she learned how to fix a car. Mm-hmm. I, and my dad knows the basics and maybe more than the basics about fixing cars. I never learned how, and I don't regret it, by the way. <laughs> and then especially like my mom, my mom was the youngest of eight kids and grew up on a farm. The number of skills she had and responsibilities she had at a young age is like unfathomable to me. And I remember her telling stories about like driving a tractor when she's like six years old. Wow. No, I don't think that was her job, <laughs> I, but she did and she knew how and did all the other chores, things I wouldn't even know where to begin how to do. And then I try and think, well, but I have other skills that they didn't have, right? I'm not sure that I do. I think maybe I just learned less. Wait, but can they both play piano? Yes. But not as well as you can, right? (laughs) Not as well as me. My mom's really good, though. Well, I guess. I also thought it was strange that she said, in this family, we take care of ourselves and we don't expect help from others. But they're living. (laughs) Right. Well, and since it seemed like, you know, one of the takeaways we had in the previous episode is how nice that they expect help from each other and that that's what family does. Yeah. I suppose they're not necessarily incompatible values that self-reliance should be like plan A and plan B is your family will catch you if you fall. Oh, I like that. But it did seem a little strange. You know, do I contradict myself very well then? I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. There's some Whitman I can remember. Remember folks, I said she was a poet. (laughs) (laughs) When Sarah was saying goodbye to her car. That was really sweet. And and Zeke even kind of like, you're not going to cry, are you? <laughs> She's like, no. Oh, <laughs> but I did think it was a really beautiful moment. And she's so great. And he's so great. And it did also make me wonder, have either of you ever had like an emotional attachment to a car like that or to any object that was like maybe really junk? But to you, it was something more Um, My first car I named, you know, like I was so excited to have my first car. So I named it Toby Devo was (laughs) for ridiculous reasons. Um, But I loved that car. And then I wrecked that car. Um, Just I don't even know what happened. I I ran a stop sign and I, I hit another car. Luckily, everyone was okay. It was just a weird thing. It was early in the morning. Anyway, I felt like I killed somebody, I think because I was so attached to that car and I'd named it and everything. I have not named a car since. I'm like, I need some distance between me and this object. I can't get so close again. Um, So there's my answer. (laughs) (laughs) I have not had nothing I can think of that I've had that emotional attachment to, but I've also had conversations with people about how I feel like I'm very cold hearted in a lot of ways because I'm not a sentimental person when it comes to objects or like photos or mementos. Like I throw everything out. I hate clutter. So I don't really have an attachment to things so much, but. But you're not cold hearted. You cry at every episode of Parenthood. (laughs) (laughs) I guess. I guess there's different degrees, but objects do not make me feel that way. So we're all emotional in different ways. I tend to be like that, too. I'm not uh, I don't grow attached to stuff. I'm not nostalgic. I truly wasn't even thinking of this when I posed the question. 
But the house that I mostly grew up in, my parents divorced in 2009. And either that year or the next year, they uh, sold the house. And I wasn't there for it because I was in New York. And that might have been part of it. The last time I was in the house, I was aware that it might be the last time, but I didn't know. And then once it was actually gone, I did feel a loss that I was not expecting to feel. Normally, I would have been like, it's just a house. Who cares? And a big part of me does still think that. But it does it does make me a little heartsick. And still to think like, oh, I loved that house. It's not ours anymore. Well, and is it also maybe wrapped up with the fact that your parents weren't selling it together? You know, it was it was the end there of was something. Definitely, I did often think about the fact because it was a much nicer house than any that we had ever lived in. And so when we moved in, it was all five of us together in this spirit of like euphoria. Like we would literally chant, we're going to live in a palace. And then my sisters and I, we all left the house separately when we went off to college and that's fine. And then my parents left it separately also. And I was like, oh, Uh. we went in together and we went out separate. So that was definitely part of it. Wow. Yeah. Speaking of houses, I have a few questions about the Braverman house and like Sarah's living situation. Cause like we see her struggling with that, wanting to move into the guest house or whatever. First, first question, have Sarah and Amber really been sharing a twin bed this whole time? Was that their plan? I, I, how is that possible? And then follow-up question. <laughs> How many bedrooms are in that oh house? My God. I mean, I'm assuming it feels like the siblings all grew up there. And it's like, okay, there's a Zeke and Camille master bedroom, I'm assuming. There's the room that Drew is in. And then apparently Sarah and Amber have to share. So that's three bedrooms. That house is enormous. There's no way. And I way. suppose it's possible if like, okay, maybe the boys shared a room their entire lives. And maybe the girls shared a room their entire lives. But yeah, the house seems gigantic. My small right. house has three bedrooms. Like their house is like five times the size of my house. There's no way there's only three bedrooms. I had that exact thought. I put it in my notes. I was like, this just feels like convenience because they need to get Sarah into, you know, the guest house and she finds the condoms and the, you know, like, and, and it forces that issue. They, you know, have to have that conversation. And so, yeah, I just thought to me, I don't really buy it. I feel like if this were truly what the house looked like, they would just have five bedrooms easily. She would live in one of those. They wouldn't even need a guest house. I don't know. I agree. Like I can, I can't figure it out, especially like even just their backyard is like freaking amazing. How are they, how do they only have three bedrooms in their house? Like it doesn't make sense. No, No. (laughs) unless they just have a bunch of stuff stored in the other ones. (laughs) One of those devoted to Crosby's laundry. Yes. I love that. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a good point. Maybe they've just filled up the spaces. But you would think like if you knew your your daughter and her kids were moving back in, you could clear out a room like, I don't know. <laughs> so yeah. Don't have Instead to share of, a tiny. Here's this twin bed and this one pillow. <laughs> have fun, girls. <laughs> While little tiny Drew gets to zone room. I loved how Amber delivered that line. She was like, can you explain to me why little tiny Drew gets his own <laughs> When she's in the guest house, Sarah has this scene with Camille. I like him. I've always liked I him. No, if only I had married Jim instead of that musician. How differently my I never life said that. You didn't Don't have be to so say it. Oversensitive. That musician, like that Todd. Ah, oh. is that a callback to the sh- to the movie? 
It might be, or maybe you're just really perceptive. That might be it. Or maybe when you take copious notes over everything you're watching <laughs> and then you have an hours long conversation about it, you notice parallels you wouldn't otherwise. I don't know. <laughs> but that's all I could think of that musician. I thought that was such an interesting nod. I also, my ear was caught by Camille using the word transsexual yeah. to describe Jim's, some relative of Jim's. And I think I kind of thought that that word was totally out of fashion, not used anymore, offensive. But I looked it up. At least this is according to Healthline.com, which I've never been to before, but I'm going <laughs> to assume that it's authoritative. It said, historically and medically, the term transsexual was used to indicate a difference between one's gender identity and sex assigned at birth. More specifically, the term is often, though not always, used to communicate that one's experience of gender involves medical changes, such as hormones or surgery, that help alter their anatomy and appearance to more closely align with their gender identity. It is not interchangeable with transgender, and many in the transgender community find it offensive. I thought that it was always offensive, and apparently it isn't, necessarily. My ear was caught by that as well, and I thought... I also looked it up and and I didn't even write mine down. I should have, but I was like, okay, the gist that I saw, yeah, was that transgender seemed to be more inclusive because it wasn't speculating as to whether somebody had had surgery or not. And I always thought that, that was very invasive. Like you weren't supposed to, like that's none of your business, you know? And, and so transgender felt like it would be uh, more inclusive and therefore the more accurate term. But I don't know, something about that whole scene, I was like, it lifts right out. You you just need to make it clear that Camille had a longer talk with Jim than Sarah thought was appropriate. I just thought that that didn't age very well. I was like, they could have talked about literally anything else. I don't know. That felt a little bit just off to me. Yeah. And yet, weirdly, to me, Camille feels like the most believable Berkeley resident to me. <laughs> with her hair. <laughs> Maybe and her free this spirit. is even my cartoon version of what someone in Berkeley is like. Uh, Angela, did you have any thoughts on that particular scene or anything? No, actually, like, I just kind of was like, be nice to her for once. Is what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah. Wait, which one be nice to? Be nice to Sarah. Like everybody's Uh. just like always down on Sarah, even Sarah. So Mm, that's true. (laughs) Someone just needs to have her corner. Did you think that um, that was kind of what Camille was implying in that scene? Like if you had been with someone like Jim instead of that musician, instead of Seth, your life would have been a lot better. Or do you think Sarah's being sensitive? I really couldn't decide what I thought on, on that particular scene. I think Sarah's being sensitive, but I also feel like she needs someone to not call her out on like you're being too sensitive because according to her, everyone has always, you know, that musician, um, you didn't make the right choice and she's not happy with her choice now. And she feels like she's being judged for it. She doesn't have a lot of self-esteem and I can identify with her on that because, you know, I had a child out of wedlock and that's extremely disappointing to my parent. I mean, not now, but at the time, like I wasn't doing what everyone else had a plan for me. And so it didn't register. Maybe I was taking things and putting thoughts in other people's heads for them that weren't as bad, but I could have had more people be like, oh no, it's not really that big of a deal. Like we'll get through this together. I'll be there for you. Not like you're being oversensitive. Stop being oversensitive. Yeah. So. Oh, that's such a good point. I, 
I love that. I, that's probably the better thing to get from that scene than <laughs> did she say transsexual? <laughs> you know, should she have? <laughs> that's, yeah, that's good. Well, Sarah eventually does broach the subject of moving into the office with Zeke. What do you think, Dad, if I moved into your office for a little while? Well, honey, why the hell you want to sleep back there? It's all moldy. Well, maybe, but me and Amber in that little room, kind of tight. No, I work back there, sweetheart. Right. Here you go. See, this is an engine you can work on. Isn't that beautiful? Dad, why do you have condoms in the office? I don't want to talk to you about that. Now, do you think Sarah has the right to ask Zeke about the condoms? I know I wouldn't want to talk to my dad about it, but... <laughs> <laughs> That is such a good question that I didn't I didn't even look at it from that angle. Like, does she have the right to ask that? Maybe she doesn't. I think I would ask my parent that without really questioning whether or not I had the right to. <laughs> you know, I think I would just want to know. I love Zeke's answer, though. I love especially the, the way Craig T. Nelson delivers that line. He didn't sound particularly defensive or angry, just like, honest like well, I don't want to talk to you about that you know like something you know and and that's fair <laughs> you know yeah yeah what did you think Caleb um I don't know <laughs> I was genuinely asking I suppose that she probably has the right to ask and I think he definitely has the right not to answer it I thought it did raise an interesting question about privacy between parents and children you know, within a family, I think you do want to foster an idea that you can talk about anything, but that doesn't mean that there is no such thing as privacy. And I think Zeke is entitled to his privacy, and I think the kids are entitled to their privacy. And now thinking back to that scene with Camille, perhaps there's a little bit of that in Sarah's anger, I guess, at Camille talking to Jim, that it might almost feel like an invasion of privacy. Mm. Like, I was dating this guy and I just broke up with him, and now you're talking to him? Stay out of it. Anyway, I thought that was an interesting point. And then I liked at the end when Zeke brought it up again. You know, Sarah didn't bring it up. He brought it up. And I thought that was really big of him to acknowledge that it was selfishness. Yeah. Uh, which was why he was. And that it kind of, it moved the issue off of the condoms and onto the real issue, which is Sarah wants to go out there, but she obviously seems to think perhaps this is where my dad hooks up with women who aren't my mom. And and he kind of moved it off of, regardless of whatever I'm using it for, if you need it, you should have it, and I shouldn't stand in the way. Yeah. So let's not confess anything to each other beyond what we're comfortable with, but let's solve the issue. I'm like, Well, that's mature of everyone. Yeah. Yeah. This is really random, but I loved the dragonfly door knocker on Adam and Christina's door. I loved it too, but I kept going back because I'm like, did they use it? Nope. Julia just took her like pool stick, you know, for the, the, the floaty thing and just like banked on the door with that. I don't know why. What a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> My last question is that the episode ends with Sarah going back to Jim. Well, yeah. Which I... Honestly, didn't remember. I thought Jim was gone. And it made me wonder what happened in the course of this episode that began with her breaking up with him to make her change her mind. And the only thing I could think of was, is Jim a junkie car 
that nevertheless gets the job done oh. to Sarah. Oh. Is that the parallel we're supposed to draw? Like, yeah, he doesn't look great, but when you need him, he comes through. Wow. I'm not sure I if that's what it is, that I like that. No, I I really didn't like that the episode ended there. I thought it should have just ended with the pool scene. and But, you know, maybe they thought it doesn't really make sense that we introduce this character in the pilot and then she we don't see him in episode two and then episode three, she breaks up with him and then it's done. But that's life. I mean, maybe that doesn't make sense from a storytelling purpose. Like, why even bring him in if it's going to be that short-lived? But that happens in life all the time and... So, I, yeah, I didn't really get what that was. And I guess I'm interested to see what happens next with Jim. But mostly I just felt really bad for him. And I thought, ugh, his reaction is to say, do you like lasagna? Like, come on in. And I'm like, no, Jim, be better than this. But then I'm like, but Jim's also the guy who, like, gossiped about her to coworkers who wrote bitch on her car. And so I don't know. I don't, yeah. Do I like Jim? Do I not like Jim? I can't tell. They're a mismatch. I think I like Jim well enough. I just questioned, like, what did we see mm-hmm. in this episode to account for her change of heart? I even buy that she might have had a change of heart, but it just seems like the rules of drama would dictate that that change would be precipitated by some action that we saw. And the only action that I saw with her in that episode was her saying goodbye to the car. And then, so that was the only parallel I could draw. And I was like, well, that's kind of an insulting parallel. Well, and her dad admitting that he and and Camille have problems because he could be selfish sometimes. Maybe she thought that she's, maybe maybe she's wondering, like, maybe I was too selfish. Maybe I was too quick to throw this away. Maybe. There's like a really, really old car in the shot. Are we supposed to think that's her new car? Huh. I don't know. Or is that it's Jim's car? I don't know. Do you remember there was this, I mean, it looked like it was from, it looked like one of the ones they were looking at at the junkyard. Yeah. It's like, is this what she drove over to go see him? Oh, I didn't even notice that. But well, did she let Zeke buy her a car after all, Zeke and Camille? You know, maybe the whole point of the episode was Sarah relinquishing some pride, pride over letting her family buy her a car ride over dating a five when she's an eight or I don't know. I don't know if we know that, they, that she let them buy her a car. Can, can we apply that to other episodes, like other things? Um, Adam letting the Tibetan prayer stone do its work. Um, you know, Julia, Julia letting Sydney be taught by someone else. Maybe Crosby is relinquishing kind of any semblance of the life he knew before. Like he got scared about telling Katie, well, I don't want to, I don't want to let everyone know that I've made this change. I mean, it's like, but you have. Yeah. Deal with it. Is that reaching? Maybe, but I like to think that every episode has a theme and it's our job to uncover it here at Parenthood Pals. <laughs> <laughs> um, if there was like a certain theme, the way that, you know, we said that the second episode, the last episode was about like losing control, um, you know, and, and having to find it. I wasn't sure if I could find that as easily this time and it felt just a little bit more to me like I don't know just a continuation of certain storylines that were already in place I really liked to see how they're all developed um I don't know now that I'm talking I'm like I don't know if I like my answer (laughs) what do you what do you think Caleb I felt like this episode felt a little transitional in a way maybe that's it There was no one event in it that I think I'll think back and go, oh, that was the episode with this great moment. 
And yet when I think about each individual moment, it's not like I didn't like any of them. You know, I think of the swimming storyline as a big deal. Well, maybe not a big deal, but memorable. And like I said, like the moment of Sarah saying goodbye to the car or Max getting into Footpath, it's like, that's all good. But I didn't feel like the kind of big payoff necessarily from this one. And I think of the three that we've watched so far, this is my third favorite. It is interesting that this is the first one to make me cry because I agree that it felt more transitional. But um, man, that that song was just so beautiful. And I, I'm a sucker for a montage. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so that is kind of where I was coming from as far as like, I just felt like it was more of a continuation of the of the previous episode. So I guess as far as the episode goes, it just makes me want to keep watching the show to like, you know, see what what's going to happen next. So for me, it really is all about just spending time with these characters. They do feel like family to me. It's cheesy, but it's true. I've always thought, I wish I were a braver moon. (laughs) That's going to be our tagline for the podcast. (laughs) It is funny, though, like you mentioned in a previous episode, Melissa, how much time they spend with each other. Uh, (laughs) It's like, what are you doing on Saturday morning? Going swimming with my entire family. (laughs) I know. know. Oh, have you had plans to do that for a long time? No, we decided this morning. (laughs) And we rented rented the pool. No one else can come. (laughs) Only our family. We knocked on the door and got them out of bed and we're like, Let's go swimming, everyone. (laughs) I think that's maybe the sort of idealized crap I need right now. (laughs) It's true, though. It does go right to the heart. It does. If only it were so. Yeah. Right. Well, Well, Angela, thank you so much for joining us, our first guest. Yay. Thank you for having me. I love doing this. It's so fun. It's wonderful. I'm sure you'll be back. Oh, yes. Uh, Anytime, anytime. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. You're welcome. Please like us on Facebook, Parenthood Pals. Uh, You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, also at Parenthood Pals. And you can check us out at our website, parenthoodpals.com. Until next time, may God bless and keep you always. And may your wishes all come true. (laughs) 